millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, history friends. Welcome to the teaser episode for the Extra Feed in the month of August. How's everyone doing? I hope you're coping very well without me. I, for one, am enjoying... I was going to call it a break, but to be quite honest, it is not a break because I'm working on several different projects at the same time. I'm really excited, though. There's some really cool things coming up for When Diplomacy Fails. And this right here, this here, this episode right here, is a good opportunity for you to see what you could be availing of right now in the extra feed of When Diplomacy Fails. If you were somehow not aware, if you had been somehow able to avoid all my notices for Patreon so far, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. And what that means is that for a small amount every month, you guys could support this podcast and help it grow to unimaginable heights. We have some really cool goals coming ahead when we reach certain levels of income. Basically, that means that we take on new ambitious projects. As a result of your guys' support, there is a Polish history miniseries on the way, which will look pretty much at all of the 18th century for the country of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Depressing as that will probably be in some ways. And when we reach $1,000 a month, we will be tackling The Age of Bismarck, which is basically the series I always wanted to do. But you should know that this series will only be available to the patrons at the $5 level. In other words, it will be an exclusive series for those people that pay that little bit extra. Don't worry, I won't leave you listeners, you normal listeners, out in the cold, because I still am very much very, very fond of you. I should add, if you're not really the kind of person who wants to part with their money, I completely understand, or maybe you just don't have time to listen to all the extra things we have to offer, if you would still like to support the podcast, well, hey, thanks very much. It doesn't have to be through money. In fact, you could... Resurrect that old BFIT acronym. Remember, if you want to leave a review on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of thing, it really, really helps. At one stage, we were probably the most, considering our, our youth in terms of being a relatively young podcast, we had some serious like volume with the reviews, but they seem to have slowed down a little bit, so if you guys would like to get on that, I know for a fact that most of my listeners are from America, So, you American listeners, you wonderful American listeners, if you would like to go and leave me a nice review on the iTunes store, that would be fantastic. Hey, maybe we'll actually get on to the kind of new and noteworthy page for iTunes. That would be great. But anyway, enough of that talk. You're here to hear the little teaser snippets 
for the different extra episodes. So here we go. I'm going to introduce you to kind of the, well, the sixth episode in the Louis XIV's Arms and Army series, in which we look at the importance of quartering soldiers, and we kind of continue to look at the importance of fortresses, and how two Vauban war meant security, rather than kind of a chance to just advance one's territory for no particular end. And he really did impart this kind of focus onto Louis XIV, and and this forms a large part of the reason why Louis XIV changed the way he looked at war. He started to see it less as a chance for kind of personal glory and more of a chance to reinforce the borders of France and protect it from any external threats. And yes, he could also be said that he he simply grew up as he as he advanced in years and maybe saw that glory wasn't all that. But still, Vauban played a very important role. So I hope you listen to this snippet here and. Stick around for the rest. It sounds almost apocalyptic that armies would prepare to brace themselves for the winter and stock up provisions in anticipation for the season's difficulties, but the truth of the matter was that these soldiers, close as they were to nature and the land, would simply expire if left to face its wrath, as would we if we attempted to march around the Rhine in the height of winter. What John A. Lynn calls positional warfare was the process of defending, attacking, or reinforcing fortresses, and as the kings of the field, these settlements provide historians with a veritable saga of siege, relief, resistance, and innovation. We did see last time that the advantage often lay with the attacker, thanks mostly to the outpacing of attack tactics in comparison to those of the defence, but the ingenuity of Vauban played a large role in this outpacing, on the French side at least, and Vauban's determination to surround the fortresses with a series of interlocking defensive trenches often paid off. If Vauban's thoroughness did pay off regularly, it also won him few friends in the impetuous nobility that often accompanied the French armies to such sieges. What Vauban recognised above all, though, was that, particularly after the Franco-Dutch War, French wars were integral to ensuring French security, and it was through the capture of key fortresses be they along the Rhine crossings or along the border with the Spanish Netherlands more particularly, that such security could be guaranteed. Pitched battles were arguably more glamorous and would satiate the nobility's quest for personal glory and distinction on the battlefield in a more sprawling sphere, but such experiences were far more costly, not to mention directly dangerous. The example of the unfortunate Marshal Turenne's sudden death by cannon in an otherwise unremarkable battle comes to mind. So in episode 7, we kind of take a very different focus, and I mentioned at the start of these extra episodes, I mentioned in the first teaser episode in July how I'm really not one for naval details or anything like that, but as per the terms of these extra episodes, I wanted to look into the French Navy, and I never thought I'd hear myself say that, believe me, but I really, really was surprised, pleasantly surprised, and absolutely fascinated by what I found. There's so much detail here, guys. There's so much going on, and it's not all, like, measurements of different cannons or how fast each ship could fire or anything like that. It's it's not so much like that as much as why people served in the Navy, how France managed to have the largest Navy in Europe, the Western world, that is. Yes, indeed, they did. So... Have a listen to this and see what you think. There's some fascinating revelations 
And we kind of center upon the man in charge of this whole naval dream, Jean-Baptiste Colbert. So have a listen and stick around for the other two extra teaser snippets. Despite what history tends to tell us, despite what we've been led to believe, and despite reams of evidence which seem to point to the contrary, the primary naval power in Europe in the year 1670 was not the Dutch, it was not the English, it was not even the Ottomans or Venetians or Spanish. Instead, the European state with the greatest naval capabilities was France. By 1670, its combined naval reserves totaled 114 vessels to the English 84 and the Dutch 102. This strange fact doesn't gel with what we know either about the British and Dutch, who saw their home on the sea, and their designation as the maritime powers, which would seem to speak for itself. It also doesn't gel with what we know about French land power, and the intensive focus of Louis XIV on crafting and directing his army into one of the most incredible fighting forces on earth. That doesn't gel with any of these facts has much to do with why it would decline massively with the onset of the War of the Spanish Succession aside from a few remnants, as the French focused their energies on more important expenses on land. However, it should be added that the image for this hulking beast of a navy, the idea to have a tower over its rivals, and the belief that such a force could be used to advance French interests both in Europe and across the wider globe, was the vision of one man, to a large extent. His name was Jean-Baptiste Colbert, and he was simultaneously the French Minister for Finances. His theories, the beliefs he held, and the ambitions he saw this massive fleet fulfilling, as well as the actual process of getting the fleet launched in the first place, will form the bulk of our story. It was a story of increasing knowledge, of daring, of bravery, and eventually, a change in policy. It contained both high drama in triumph, and a resigned grimness in defeat. It's the forgotten story of the French Navy in the context of the 17th century, it's going to form the basis of our next few extra episodes. With such incredible revelations laid down, we can begin. Okay, so the following snippet here is going to be from episode 8 of the Louis Arms and Armies series, and it looks at how officers in the Navy managed to advance their careers and what the process in the French Navy was to gain experience. It sounds like a kind of a straightforward formula but it wasn't quite so simple because on the one hand you had privateers and on the other hand you had the official state navy of France and now there was often more gain to be had in serving as essentially a state-sponsored pirate and the privateers most of whom were based in Dunkirk that was kind of the pirate capital of the state in France so that was really used as a kind of an opportunity to gain experience if these men went wanted to go and like serve in the navy of France afterwards but not all sailors did that some didn't really want to serve in the French navy because they thought that it was kind of not a waste of their time but not really what they were in the navy for they wanted to be in the navy for sure a chance to gain money but also a chance to gain glory And above all, I think this has to be emphasized, 
They didn't want to be under the thumb of a boss. And yes, they would have been under a boss had they served in the French Navy because it all, well, it was controlled above all by Louis XIV. But Jean-Baptiste Colbert was the man in charge of directing the French Navy. And hey, these would-be pirates didn't really want to take orders from this guy. They wanted to do their own thing. So have a listen to this snippet and stick around for the last one. We will come to the issue of privateering and the state navy in a while, but first it's worth examining where these officers came from and how they managed to advance their careers. So there was a clear need for officers to progress in the service, but how could they do this? Well, the most obvious way was to serve as an apprentice, entering the king's service as an ensign and working their way up through different campaigns. In addition, as we mentioned, it was possible to serve in the privateers and arrange for a transfer if one desired a more stable career. But officers serving in the privateer navy rarely left it for good. The business was simply too lucrative and the state equivalent too reliable to, well, rely on for a permanent career, especially considering the fact that the navy often sat in port for half of the year. A third way one which was another advent of Colbert's, was the creation of the Guard Marine to train officers as a kind of naval college. In this, naval students would be taught seamanship, hydrography, navigation, mathematics and astronomy, and during the 1680s it could boast 2,000 graduates, although the numbers soon tapered off. Finally, if one was in search of a change of scene, the Knights of Malta were always looking for new bodies to fill their ranks, and Louis often looked favourably upon those that served with distinction in that sphere usually granting them positions in the king's galleys if they returned to France, although some, such as the distinguished Admiral Turville, would pass through this service and go on to serve as a fleet commander for France on the open seas. So in our ninth episode, in our in our last teaser snippet for August as well, we conclude our analysis of the French Navy with a kind of more familiar picture than you might be used to. You see, this is kind of when the French Navy declined as Louis focused on things that were closer to his heart, such as the French Army rather than the French Navy. Because surprising as it may seem, France actually had enough money to support both arms of the state. Until, of course, the War of the League of Augsburg, which is certainly on the way in our normal episodic coverage. Until that war kind of changed things, which is to say it bankrupted France to the extent that Louis pretty much had to choose between the left hand or the right hand, and he chose the right hand in the French army. I don't really know why I use that metaphor, but there you go. He chose the army, and before he chose the army, the navy went on a kind of decline as it was outpaced by the rivals of France, and that's really what this snippet here displays, kind of France changes from directly combating its enemies at sea to kind of more guerrilla tactics at sea and using more kind of piratical tactics that would have made a French privateer proud. And as well as that, we look at how the British and the Dutch, now allies in the war, don't forget, managed to pool their resources to collectively outnumber the French by an incredible ratio of four to one. So in the space of less than a generation, really, and Jean-Baptiste Colvert would have been turning in his grave at this point, You see France go from the supreme naval power of Western Europe to, well, just another power that was dwarfed by the maritime powers at sea. So have a listen, and I hope you'll stick around to the end. In a sense, from the 1690s on, the French fought a guerrilla war at sea, 
always on the lookout for the Anglo-Dutch and rarely risking a proper naval battle with them. On top of the perception that the open war was becoming unsustainable was an underlying technical fact that the French would have found far harder to stomach. Contrary to the standard they had established in the last two decades, France was no longer the greatest purveyor of vessels. From this I don't merely mean to say that the French were outnumbered because the British and Dutch combined their fleets. What I mean instead is that, in both the British and Dutch cases, naval production was outpacing that of France, even if at this stage the French still had the most vessels. Lynn put it more starkly when he noted that at the beginning of the War of the Grand Alliance in 1688, the French boasted 118 warships, and by the end of the war in 1697, it had built 19 new ships of the line to engage with their piratical activities abroad. During the same nine-year period, the British built 58 ships, while the Dutch built 22, meaning that the combined naval strength of the two allies outpaced France by a measure of 4 to 1. By 1700, the Allies were able to apply this production rate to the actual war of the Spanish succession, as they possessed a proper 2 to 1 advantage in all theatres at sea, meaning that the French superiority in numbers had finally come to an end. Victory, as Lynn put it perceptively, lay not in the destruction of enemy vessels, but in the construction of your own. The Anglo-Dutch, whether the French chose to change their strategy or not, were thus winning the naval war by that point. Privateering had always been a lucrative pastime of the French Navy. One recalls how Colbert's efforts to separate the different seamen into classes came mostly as part of a drive to ensure that all would not desert and join the better-paying privateer fleet, based mostly at Dunkirk. Alright guys, I hope you enjoyed this sample look at the extra episodes being released in August. I should add that... As we go forward, the extra feed is going to pretty much explode in its use. As you may or may not be aware, I've mentioned it a few times, but the Age of Bismarck series will be an extra feed exclusive. So, yeah, that's something. But you should also know that we are releasing a Jan Sobieski biography into the extra feed. And that'll actually be released every week. It's a 12-part miniseries. Now, the first episode of that will be in the normal feed for you guys, so if you want to get a feel of it there, then you can. That's all to come. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, if you don't really like the sound of Louis XIV's arms and armies, maybe you don't care about how the armies marched from A to B or anything like that. Just like I used to say, I didn't care. I still don't really. Diplomacy's still my jam, but I appreciate the little details sometimes, especially when they build towards a bigger picture that I find supremely fascinating but in any case if that's not really your kind of thing then i can assure you that the extra feed will have lots to offer going forward so hey maybe you'll think about checking us out wdfpodcast.com click on the patreon banner maybe even have an exploration around the official website we've got some great articles up there about all sorts of different topics from history make sure you check out the facebook page as well guys because i do post there like pretty much every single day about a whole host of different topics most of the time, they seem to be fairly well received, so yeah, that's good. If you want to know what I'm up to, if you want to keep up with When Diplomacy Fails, you should follow us on Twitter as well, at WDF Podcast. Other than that, keep on listening, keep on talking about us, keep on spreading the word, and I'll keep on podcasting. This has been a When Diplomacy Fails teaser for the extra feed in the month of August. My name is Zach Twomley, and I'll see you guys very, very soon. From Monday the 4th of September onwards, guys, we will be 
setting ourselves into the long war as we resume our episodic coverage and tackle episode 30. It's very exciting, and I hope to have you all along for the ride. But until then, thanks for listening here, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.